Hello and welcome to another edition of the Unheard Weekly Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and as always I'm joined by Ayesha Hazarika. I, I wondered whether you'd be in Davos actually this week. Um, <laughs> well, you know me hanging with my elite <laughs> homies. Actually, I always thought I might get an invite with John McDonnell. Yeah, there's an amazing sort of collection of people in the um, snowy uh, Swiss resort this year. And um, after Brexit and after Trump, people thought it might die out. It was supposed to be the uh, epitome of what people were rejecting. But John McDonald and Donald Trump are there. I know, it's always the way. The thing is, as much as everybody slags these things off, as soon as you get dangled the invitation to go and stay at like a sort of six-star luxury ski resort hanging out with the, like, the <laughs> famous people in the world, you're like, I mean, I really do hate the system, but I'm going to try and break it down from within, so it's imperative <laughs> that I am there. <laughs> Next year. Perhaps. Next year, fingers crossed, Tim. <laughs> and two other people who are not in Davos, um, I'm delighted to say, because it means that they are with us, um, two unheard regulars, Douglas Murray and James Bloodworth. Welcome to both of you. And we're actually here today to discuss something that James um, has contributed to um, uh, over the last week on Unheard. Uh, James, you wrote a set of profiles of uh, individuals that uh, have really kept the faith, if you like, or rejected the faith, depending on which way you're coming from. People who have opposed Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party from the beginning. People like uh, Tony Blair, uh, very well known, and then sort of perhaps less well known columnists like uh, Phil Collins and, and, and Nick Cohen. And then Michael Brendan Doherty of the National Review in the States did a parallel piece looking at the people who have consistently opposed uh, Donald Trump. Um, and I think one of the interesting, one of the reasons why we did this, uh, the main reason why we put these features together was a few years ago you would have never predicted that Jeremy Corbyn would be leader of the British Labour Party, Donald Trump would be uh, the nominee and of the Republican Party and become the, the president. We've had a recession, we've had a social media revolution, we've had the, the Iraq war. It's understandable how you could see these uh, extraordinary events lead to extraordinary uh, consequences. What, what, what's your hunch, James, in terms of is this something that we will see as a season and we replaced or have we seen something fundamentally change in the way politics works? Um, I think it's, it's the, the Corbyn movement, if you like, is part of a broader kind of post-liberal um, movement, if you like, similarly with, with Brexit and similarly with, with Donald Trump. I think it's I mean, perhaps this will be the first and last time Gramsci's quoted on, on your podcast, but it's, it's kind of the old orders dying and no one quite knows what the new new order is yet. And I think that's, um, I don't think, I, if you ask Jeremy Corbyn what, what's coming next, what socialism is to him, I think that's quite vague and sketchy as well. I think, I think similarly with Donald Trump and I think similarly with, with some of the Brexiteers, what they're, they're, if you ask for a clear vision of what, what comes after the last 30 years, I think it's quite... It isn't very clear, but again, um, I, I don't think the the kind of post seventy nine Thatcherite settlement, if, if for want of a better term, I think that's kind of that kind of reached its end point with the financial crash. I think uh, most politicians grasp that that something has to change, that um, that voters, lots of voters, um, aren't aren't happy with the status quo anymore. And do you think uh, voters are picking? anything that upsets the system because 
there are similarities and neither would probably uh, welcome the comparison but there are similarities between the two both were against the Iraq war for example both have rejected a lot of the globalization um, both are skeptical about NATO completely different personalities in in many respects but there not only have they sort of responded to the phenomenon we've been seeing but they have actually res they sh do share some common ground yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, the movements the movements against the status quo are very disparate, but it's, I'd say most of them are characterised by a kind of populism which posits this dichotomy of the establishment versus the people, elites versus the people. So when I was in Spain looking at Podemos as, an, as a version of left populism, it's in some respect the categories they use, establishment versus people, elites mm -hmm. versus people, it's not that different from some of the the rhetoric that came, that comes from Donald Trump, that comes from, that came from the Brexit campaign. It's... There's a, a kind of disgust with the status quo for, for various reasons, as you said, the financial crash, the Iraq war, uh, immigration to some extent in the UK, um, but it's not really gra grasping onto any one like ideological replacement because I don't think since the fall of the Berlin Wall, what, what is the alternative to, to what we've had for the past 30 years? Most people aren't, aren't really quite sure. A, a piece that you wrote for us, Douglas, um, a few months ago now, we illustrated with Tony Blair morphing into Jeremy Corbyn. I don't even remember, yes. remember the I illustration. And it was to illustrate your point that um, a lot of what the uh, new left, uh, third way left uh, in Europe and America become associated with Clinton, Schroeder, Blair, um, was actually with the elite, with the Davos people, mm. if you like. And in some ways, Jeremy Corbyn uh, was able to. To, to respond to that and equally um, George W. Bush paved the way for, for, for Donald Trump um, and neither are reconciled to their successors. Mm. Uh, how much do you think Jeremy Corbyn could not have happened without Tony Blair, that Donald Trump could not happen without George W. Bush? I, mean, I think in, in both countries what you see is a, a consequence of not the experts being proved wrong, but the adults appearing to have been proved wrong. Uh, you're told, you know, there are some people who know what is best for your country, for your economy, for your society, for other societies as well. And um, if they are proved very badly wrong, very visibly wrong, um, something happens to the politics. My view is it, it becomes like a body whose immune system is becoming weak. Um, you suddenly become vulnerable to viruses of politics that you hadn't been vulnerable to for a very long time. You you come down with the common cold in a really bad way. <laughs> um, and new things can happen as well. And uh, and to a great extent, I think this this is a response to the, the, this, this phenomenon, that the adults, if not the experts, appear to have been wrong. So people who say now, well, at some, this must be an aberration. And at some point we'll go back to the adults. At some point we'll reach back to Tony Blair. At some point we'll reach back and ask another member of the Bush family to come and rule us. <laughs> I'm not sure those people are right. Because mm -hmm. Aisha used to work for Ed Miliband, the former leader of the, the Labour Party. And uh, he, um, he was in a way halfway between Blair and Corbyn. Is, is, is that fair? Was, yeah, he, I think was he, he a stepping stone to this? I think, or? He, I think he probably was. He was probably a sort of a gateway in many ways to... to a gateway of, drug. A gateway drug. And actually, I think he is very, very soft left. And I think in his heart, he really wanted to have had the courage to do what kind of Corbyn, the path that, that Corbyn's gone down. 
but he didn't because at the end of the day he still triangulated in that very sort of Blair New Labour mm. modern politics way where you sort of start wanting this and then you, you, you kind of compromise yourself into the sort of third way but I think you know the conditions for Corbyn had been set for a very very long time you know I'm an ardent supporter of the Labour Party and probably you know also I worked for Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and Ed Miliband I worked for a lot of leaders but you know I would argue that after since really 2005 the Iraq war you know the Labour government did sort of run out of steam and then you had this sort of collision of austerity and the financial crash and globalization mm. so suddenly you've got an entire country of people as you, as you were saying Douglas you know the grown-ups always said do this don't do that you know you have to trust us and suddenly they're like no let's rip up all the rules and in a way don't tell me I'm going to be £6,000 worse off or because I don't feel like I've got anything to lose right now, so why not stick two fingers up to the established order? And I remember actually when Jeremy Corbyn put his name forward for the um, leadership challenge, and we all assumed it would be Yvette Cooper that would win it. She seemed the natural sort of heir. And we had an internal husting, so no media was there. It was in Parliament, just our MPs, Lords, MEPs. And Corbyn didn't even have anywhere near enough names to even make it on the nomination um, paper. But out of all the sort of moderate, centrist candidates, he came in as the left candidate and he spoke with more clarity, authenticity, fluency, and confidence he knew what he believed in and I remember we kind of joked afterwards sort of saying gosh if he, if he gets on the ballot paper he's going to be leader of the Labour Party and <laughs> everyone <laughs> nervous laugh but actually you can see the appeal because I think so many politicians that went before him for such a long time on both parties Labour and Conservative and of course the Liberal Democrats who compromised mm. themselves into sort of you know a death spiral really um, nobody could give a straight answer to anything. Your sound did the same. Exactly. Mm, yeah. And that's a interesting sort of parallel as, as well, isn't it, James? Is that um, not only did Corbyn and Trump have almost no support from elected representatives, they had almost no support from the media either. And yet somehow they were able to talk around the traditional gatekeepers and win huge levels of support uh, is the, in a way I think 2016 were an indictment of the media and the media class um, it's being out of touch as much as the political class yeah I mean I think it reached the point where I think politicians are now starting to understand that having the establishment against you um, and that includes the media is actually becoming quite beneficial mm -hmm. I mean um, there's like New Labour the culture was very managerial um, it, it, it bled into that kind of put your faith in experts um, which backfired so spectacularly with the Remain uh, campaign and I think the media is seen as that same class of people and, it, and it, I mean it often is um, lots of lots of journalists come from the same like, background are friends with with lots of leading politicians and you've also then you've opened up with the internet you've, you've got that scope to, to to have alternative media now whereas even just 10 years ago you'd have had to take your news through more establishment sources so there's so it has opened it up more mm -hmm. to grass to the grassroots we're seeing in a way douglas the fruits of a long-term set of processes uh, we're familiar with the economic decline of the news industry mm. uh, newsrooms are 
half the size as they used to be. A lot of the most experienced journalists were laid off because they're the most expensive ones. Uh, there's been a heavy concentration in London or in America in the, on the coasts. Um, and I think the, the point that, that James uh, makes, that uh, people in the media tend to be more of a certain kind, more secular, more mm. liberal, better off, more university educated. Yes. The media missed this, yes. didn't they? And are you, are you seeing changes in the media to address this, or is it pretty much continuing on the same path? I think it's, it's continuing on the same path, path or becoming the thing it hates. Um, let me give you an example. There was a very, very evocative cartoon in the New Yorker after the election of Donald Trump um, showing passengers on a plane, sort of saying, um, or a bus, I think it was, it's saying, you know, we, we want to take over the, the, the steering wheel, and, you know, who are these experts driving us? What was so revealing about it is, of course, is that most of us, members of the public, actually don't think that we're just on a bus and have to shut up <laughs> and be driven wherever the driver thinks we should go. We don't feel that that's the deal. Mm. Uh, but the New York and a lot of other bits of the media think that that is the deal, that they, they do know better and so on. So, so there's a real um, digging in, and you can see that, by the way, in parts of the media's response to things like, for instance, J.D. Vance's memoir. You know, very interesting memoir, but they, they behave as if... The Hillbilly Elegy. Hillbilly yeah, Elegy. Yeah. They behave I recommend as that to every listener. It's, 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 a, it's a very good memoir. But they, they, they talk about it as if, here is this person from another planet who you should really read about so that we can understand them and then ignore them again. Well, there is very little effort to actually bring this into uh, mm. uh, consideration. There is a sort of, as I say, let's try to understand these people in order to get round them or in order to, to sort of bypass it in some way. And, uh, and then you get the phenomenon of, of uh, what I think of, as I say, the CNN becoming the thing they hate uh, phenomenon, where you you become a campaigning media organization, an undisguisedly campaigning media organization, which, which means in the long run even fewer people will trust you. You, you can't turn on some of these networks now without knowing these are, these are just megaphones for political ideology. And, and so bit by bit, even if they think they're doing the right thing, they erode any trust in the idea that the media is actually impartial. We had a conversation a few weeks ago where uh, we both agreed we were glad for the BBC for all of its yes. faults it's almost unique now in the world to be such a uh, to able to have a uh, to convene a national conversation I, mean, I, I didn't go for that I, mean, I think it makes you very grateful for Ofcom actually in this country and I think I agree with quite a lot of what you've said but I mean I think that's the way of American um, news broadcast. I mean, I do a lot of stuff for CNN. We're quite conscious about how much we talk about Trump. We try and talk about lots of other issues as well. But, you know, Trump does drive the news agenda hugely. But similarly, Fox is as bad as being a campaigning sort of organisation on the other side. Um, I think our newspapers in Britain are kind of going down that track and I think that's one of the reasons why they are not doing very well and why people have less and less trust in the media. I think our newspapers are incredibly partisan both um, left and right but you know we are failing to under we're, we are failing and we've failed for such a long time as a political class as a media class as a an intellectual class as the ruling class to sort of see really obvious basic things coming down the track track I mean I, I'm not I don't feel particularly jubilant about this but I absolutely predicted that Trump was going to win and I predicted we were going to be leaving the EU and I didn't want either of those things to happen. 
but I do have friends and try and make an effort to go outside my bubble. I remember spending time in some Labour constituencies which there was absolutely no way they were going to be voting to stay within the United the, the, the European Union. Yet the Remain campaign just refused to believe it. And you sort of have to ask why does this disconnect sort of keep happening in politics? And one of the things I think is a tragedy about where we are with Brexit, whatever your view is, we're not learning the lessons about all the things that happened. You know, we've had these conversations so many times. Why did we miss the signals? Who were we not talking to? Why were we in our echo chamber? And we're not really addressing the issues behind for, that. For, certainly for me, for one of the sadnesses of uh, the post-Brexit uh, debate is uh, very little effort on both sides to understand the other side. Mm. Yeah. There's a, the, the, the poison that's in the national debate mm. now and um, the uh, disdain for the other side is not a, not, a, not an attractive thing. But I no, am I, I, no, I, I'm guilty of that as, you know, uh, other people. If I say so, a lot of people yeah. are, and you say from both sides, I was particularly amused the other day to listen to a, a lead Remainer um, say within a minute, I think, on a radio programme, first of all, she would like to bring back the stocks. <laughs> and secondly, that That's if quite moderate. And secondly, if there's one thing she really wanted, it was to heal the divide. <laughs> in our country. Now, it's true that putting the stocks up could heal a divide by just ensuring that all your critics get locked up, but really that's all part of the problem and you can get that everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a mania on the loose, a mania in the way which people are discussing their opponents in politics and, uh, and people don't seem to realise that they themselves are doing it. I'm just going to interject. I think social media is making some of this stuff worse in a way mm. because if you, I mean, if, if I go home and sit on Twitter for a few hours and I'm following lots of journalists, people, London liberal minded people, you're apt to go away from that and think that everyone thinks like that. Everyone, you know, everyone is, li is like my friends on Twitter. And then if you go out into the country, you, you start to, it, it comes as kind of a shock. I mean, it certainly did writing the book. You, you meet lots of people who, who don't think what you do and can argue the point very well. This is and your forthcoming book on yeah. um, people who... The low-pay economy, low yes. Um, and I think you c it can also lead people to... F they forget how to make arguments. So you, mm -hmm. instead of making arguments, Twitter's very good for kind of performative denunciation. And then you forget how to take on your opponents in an argument. So you see these, these grand kind of yeah, denunciations, um, outrage, shock. And you forget actually how to engage with someone and bring try to bring them over to your, yeah. to your point you, of view. Has your balance of people you follow changed at all? Um, um, <laughs> do you, do you I, I spend less time on Twitter. I'd yeah. say that's... Um, so you're not, that's, that's you're not consciously trying to add people perhaps who have a different perspective yeah, from I mean, you. Uh, but it, I, do, I do try to do that as well. But yeah. it's, I mean, if anything's come out of it, it's, I try to spend less time on social media and more time just getting out there and talking to people. Such a radical thought to meet real people. But I, I really agree with uh, what, what James has said, and I think because everything is just so polarised on Twitter, it's removed the art of debate and it's removed the art of how to actually make an argument. And it feels like everybody is just campaigning the whole time. Mm -hmm. And even though Donald Trump is president, he still acts like he's some kind of insurgent outsider, sort of campaigning mm -hmm. against his own party, his own White House, his own sort of legislative chambers. And I was reading this interview with um, Blair this week, and he reminded everybody that you know you there is a difference between campaigning and governing you can sort of be a maverick campaigner but then 
when you get power, you have to become this quite boring sort of executive person, and because yeah. you have you've, you know, you have to fix things and you have to sort of do things, and that's what's interesting about Trump. He is actually not. I think Corbyn is as Corbyn gets closer to power, I think he's smartened up. He has compromised more on quite a lot of things. I think he's actually becoming a bit more of a sort of conventional politician in, in some ways. Trump, on the other hand, I think is doubling down on his sort of insurgency. You know, to him, it's it's no bad thing that there's a government shutdown. It's no bad thing that, you know, half his White House staff have walked out in the last year because it still reinforces the, the concept that he is not going to be like the swamp. He is this outsider. They're all ganging up against him and he is different. Where he's not so different, though, uh, is that he's actually pursuing a lot of the same policies that the uh, old Republican Party would have pursued, the tax cuts package, for example, that Congress has just passed, still benefits largely the, the better off. I think that's well established. Uh, James, as, as we wrap up, uh, how have the uh, opponents of Corbyn and Trump done in terms of forging a new policy agenda? Uh, uh, when we look at the Blairites, for example, um, looking from the outside, I don't see much of a fresh agenda uh, a, a new alternative being put forward to Corbyn. I, is that fair? I think it is fair, yes. Um, but then again, I, I'm, I think that's tr I think it's true across politics as a whole. I'm, I'm not sure there is anyone, any one faction, even in, in government, with a coherent programme of where we go next. Mm -hmm. I mean, New Labour, mm -hmm. there are people in New Labour who purely, who simply want to go back to, who who are more nostalgic than Corbyn. Corbyn gets accused of being nostalgic for the 70s, for example, but I think there are some of the never Corbins are more nostalgic who j they just want to rewind to 1997 again and think that you can again pursue this um, this idea of social democracy where the city is allowed to do what it wants and you just use the money to fund a, a big welfare state mm. um, I think there's arguably more fresh ideas coming from Corbynism than there is coming from, from that strand of, of Blairism. Is that, what are the new ideas coming from Corbyn? They seem to me to be pretty much like the old ideas of nationalisation and yeah, such I mean, like. I, mean, I haven't noticed much new thinking anywhere. I mean, there is, yeah, I mean, there is that, that strand of it which is quite strong, but I mean, I think there are some, some interesting things going on in terms of local democracy and local investment and how the, the relationship with the state and local communities, etc. So just to, I suppose, stick up for Corbyn on this point, I think there's no such thing as a new idea, let's be honest, They're all, they all do kind of come around, mm. but as somebody who has, you know, been around Labour politics for, gosh, you know, 20 odd years, this did sound new and it, it might be nostalgic in some ways but actually what was refreshing in the manifesto whether you agree it was costed or not whether you, whether you agree with it or not was it had quite kind of clear policy sort of ideas scrapping tuition fees which mm. is you might think it's mad but it's an interesting yep. provocative thing nationalizing the trains again you might disagree with it chimes hugely with the with the public so I think what is new about Corbynism is that he's got kind of clearly defined ideas. You might completely disagree with them, yeah. but you know what they are. Yeah. Which is a massive contrast with Theresa May. <laughs> right. We don't, don't really know where she stands on anything, Douglas. No, this is true. And, and, and the Conservative Party in this country is obviously going to have to address this because Corbynism shouldn't be a hard thing to critique and also often alternative to. I think what, what they're suffering from at the moment is the same thing that a lot of Trump's opponents have suffered from in the States. The policy is basically to hope that he messes up so badly that the kids will come back home. And, uh, of course, that was a hope with a lot of the Labour Party over Corbyn. 
uh, Corbyn would mess up so badly at the election that the children would realize that the, 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 they, the parents were correct. And uh, unfortunately, it turned out differently uh, in both countries. And, and I'm not sure people have quite reconciled to that. In America, the anti-Trump gate is still always holding on every single possibility that the president will be impeached within the next 24 hours. In America, in, in his Britain, approval rating is 35%, though. It's record yeah. low. It's, uh, he's, he's incredibly vulnerable. Uh, yes, possibly, uh, as is as is called. Everyone's vulnerable at the moment. I mean, we live in a political climate <laughs> where whenever anyone around the world is said to be a strong statesman or stateswoman, they immediately go crashing to earth. And and it, it's, um, it's a volatile time for everybody. But I think that the crucial thing is that it's not enough uh, in this country or in America simply to be in opposition to these people. You have to create a viable alternative. And that... That it is striking in both countries is very, very absent. So the final uh, question for all of you, and then we must wrap up. After Corbyn, after Trump, what's going to happen? Are we going to have a more Blair-like figure or a more sort of Sanders-like figure? Which way, if you had to predict, is, is it going to go? Are you sure? I'll put you on the hot spot first. I think it really depends on actually what happens at the next general election. If Corbyn manages to win, even in you know coalition and gets into Downing Street, then you know even his ardent critics will have to say, well, you know what? We always said that the mantra was not to be in glorious opposition, but to win power. That's the point of having a sort of political party. So I think people will have to sort of, you know, sort of get behind him. But of course, if we completely get sort of spanked at the next election then of course I think that will see a resurgence in you know the, the moderates I think will become um, more muscular but remember the, the membership of the Labour Party has fundamentally shifted that has shifted to and do you the, want, the do left. You, do you want him to become Prime Minister? Uh, Yes, I would, because I think right now he would... I don't think anyone could do a worse job than the current Prime Minister Ooh. is doing. Oh, yes, oh. they could. Oh, yes, oh they gosh. Could. <laughs> I don't know about that, actually. Uh, James? Are you, I, think, I think you're more likely to... I think someone like Corbyn... It's, it seems seems strange to say this in a way. Someone like Corbyn is more likely to win power than someone like Blair at this moment. I think... I think I really do believe that the, the kind of the status quo of the past 30 years is is kind of over and I think a challenger from the left or the right um, can kind of overthrow that if I think that's that's completely feasible and do you think it's mainly anger anger or boredom or a, a mixture of both that is wanting change I think it's a, mi a mixture of a few things I think <coughs> Douglas made the point about people are, are sick and tired of being told by so-called experts who've got so many things wrong over the mm. past several decades and um, what to do I think you've seen the decline of uh, the real decline of, of many towns across the country, formerly working class Because communities. Because smaller uh, towns. And, yeah, uh, who, yeah. Who, who, who it feels to them that, that it's gone backwards in recent decades. Mm. Yeah. I, I would just add that, I mean, that there, is, there is a tendency, it's, this, it's a slightly childish tendency in itself, but to, to punish <coughs> the political class, to kick them in the groin. Um, Donald Trump was to a great extent that in America. And there are people who would like to use Jeremy Corbyn for a similar uh, thing. I just would observe that Whenever people think that it, it, it couldn't be worse, it, it almost always can be. And um, uh, I have lots of criticisms of Jeremy Corbyn, as I do of Trump and others, but uh, I, I remain, as maybe two parts and a point to end on, but I mean, one key thing in particular, which is the arrival of Jeremy Corbyn in Downing Street brings too narrow, uh, makes too narrow the gap between politics and the use of political violence. 
I just have always felt that you cannot ever reward people who have been so opaque on that absolutely central issue of democracy. Okay. I mean, I have to probably, I, I mean, I just feel I sort of do have to kind of challenge that. I mean, I have lots of issues with a lot of the people on Corbyn, but I think to link him personally, saying him coming into Downing Street means that there's going to be political violence is no, 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 a bit no. of a not, stretch. Not that, they're, not that he's going to cause political violence, but he himself throughout his career has always had such a very, very, let's say complex uh, attitude towards political violence, and in a way that I think should never be anywhere near the centre of our politics. He, he, he has, um, I, I used the analogy I think to Tim before, but I remain of the, of the view that if a Conservative MP had invited the killers of Joe Cox to Parliament uh, or, and people who wanted to do that more, we would never forgive that MP and we never should. And I at any rate retain a long memory. And I only wish that British people had a long memory. But Douglas, I think that's a classic <laughs> what we just talked about, about kind of not understanding where people are from. Even people on my side that didn't like Jeremy Corbyn from day one that he put his name in the ballot paper said, you're an IRA supporter, Hamas, this, that, the next thing. A lot of people out there don't even know what no, Hamas I know, is. They, they, don't think care. It, they think they it's don't a care. dip. And more than anything, they think that some of the policies that have been pursued by conservative leaders have also led to terrible yeah. things, loss of life, extreme sure. hardship. So I think that is a very difficult, you know, we don't want to end on a part yeah. note, but I think that is a sort of difficult note to sort of, to, you know, to I go just, down. I just would say that in terms of political memory, for a lot of people in this country, in this island, the situation in Northern Ireland cannot be reduced to a historical memory. But, there are many, but we've many just had a general election where actually a lot of that was not a huge issue for, for, for lots of people. And as we have younger voters, that's going to become less and less of an issue. Things like you sure. know austerity and lots of other you know Brexit. That's going to become the new. But just just thing because it isn't people. an issue for voters, it may be that it should be, but we will. But, have then, but that's us. That's us sounding quite out of touch. We're sort yeah, of just maybe. assuming no, this sure. is what no, young yeah. people should be thinking about, and yeah. they're thinking about lots of other things. Yeah. I'm not saying you're on. wrong, but no, no. that's where a lot of people are. Well, it was a, I think quite a um, agreeable podcast. We were making points um, and largely agreeing with each other and then Douglas shook <laughs> things up at the end just as time was against us so uh, uh, maybe we should reconvene again soon to discuss this point although maybe we'll be having violence around the table if we did so uh, I'm not sure that would be a good idea but Douglas Murray uh, James Bloodworth and when is your book out James? First of March so uh, very exciting and what's the title? Hired Hired. H-I-R-E-G. Well, we're really looking forward to that. And Aisha, you're off to Cambridge this I evening. I am. I'm off to Cambridge to do um, some chatting about feminism and politics and then doing a burn supper that I'm very excited about. Oh, well, have a great evening. And thank you all for listening. And um, can I also recommend... Um, if you enjoy our podcast, we have a regular shorts podcast with Peter Franklin as the central guest talking about the daily uh, features that he publishes looking at the news. And then um, we've got Douglas around the table. should recommend his audio documentary that he produced for Unheard as well on remembering the uh, forgotten victims of communism. Um, thank you very much to James Coney who produces this podcast. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>